Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live, and it is my honor to welcome our special guest today, writer-director Ivan Kavanaugh. Ivan, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, yeah. Glad to be here. Uh, it is our honor to have you here with us. So let's get started. We have a lot of questions for you. First of all, we're going to get to your amazing uh, recent movie, Son, in a second. Uh, I was just looking over your uh, resume on IMDb, and it looks like you got your professional start in 2003. So walk us through how it all started with that short film that you got in 2003. Well, I, I was always, my, I'm from a very working class background of Dublin, um, where I'm from, where I'm from, you know, no one ever became filmmakers. You know, the idea of becoming a filmmaker, you might as well, you know, said you wanted to be an astronaut or something. You know, it was something just beyond my reach, you know. But my mother, I remember when I was about 12 or 13, bought a, a high eight video camera, which was a really low end home video camera. Uh -huh. and, and one day I just picked it up and I started to film some stuff. And then I made some short films with my friends and. I remember I used to use uh, two VCRs back to back to edit them together, and the old days. And then the old days, yeah. And and then when the digital revolution happened in the in the in the 90s, I I bought three chip digital digital cameras. I got a bank loan to um, buy my own uh, editing equipment, uh, you know. And um, I showed one of my short films to a friend of mine, and he said, "You you should show it." you know, send it into a festival or something, you know? Mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, I had never thought of that. I was just making them from myself. Yeah. And I sent it into this, my very first film, uh, what I consider my first film into a festival and I won an award there. So, um, it the just snowballed from there. It was, it was just, it was just, the, um, the wasn't is, planned. It just happened, you know, the rest is history as they say. Absolutely. I want to get to your latest movie that's out, that came out this year, and that's Sun. It stars the brilliant young actress that uh, the majority of us got to meet in Halloween 2018, and that's Andy Matichak. Uh First of all, you wrote Sun and you directed Sun. It's an amazing film. Uh, let's start with the writing part. How did you come up with what I call the modern day version of the omen movies <laughs> oh yeah i suppose it is. i suppose i didn't think of it but the omen but i suppose it is yeah it's a little bit like that i mean um it really started like all my films it kind of started from a, a very personal place um uh, my son was born my first son was born uh, about five years ago and um he had a very difficult birth mm -hmm. and me and my wife are very worried about him for the first few months of his life and I, I began to see how close him and my wife were becoming though I, I saw firsthand that mother and son bond how strong and close that can be you know and I began to think is there anything a mother who loved her son wouldn't do to protect him how far would she go to make him well again if he was ill and so during those sleepless nights when we were up with the baby and I just start jotting down ideas and um, yeah. And then once I, I, I jotted those down, those initial ideas, it just flowed out of me then straight after. So it came from a very, very personal place, which was my worry about my own son, yeah. which was this helplessness I felt as I looked at him that I couldn't do anything to help him. And I could totally uh, understand my yeah. second born, which is my first son. I have three yeah. children. He spent two years in the uh, ICU as a baby right after birth. 
Oh so my god! I totally understand what you're talking about. I mean, I, I feel I, I've been there. I've been yeah. there. I'm not knowing yeah. on your newborn child if they're going to live yeah. or die. Luckily, absolutely. You, yeah, yeah. Go on. Absolutely, and, and and it's you know yourself. It's it's when you have a kid, you just realize you know you you do anything for this kid. You know, it's and and, and then the mother is this biological connection that the father doesn't have. You know, and it's even closer. So. It's one step even further than that, you know. So um totally, you know, totally it's... understand that. Now, how did the uh cult uh the demonic figure when did that start coming into play as you were starting to think of ideas for this script? Um I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't do any research about cults or anything like that. But I mean, nobody really has to. We, we, we've all heard those urban legends or maybe not urban legends about, you know, cults and satanic cults and stuff like that, you know. And, yeah. and um, I, I, I was thinking that because I wanted to call into question Andy's, the character, Laura's sanity, you know, is she telling is, she, is what she's saying real or imagined? I thought the idea of bringing this kind of very conspiracy theory cult into it would be a way to show that, you know? Yeah. This, uh, you know, about this satanic cult. So, I mean, the way we structure, I structured the film was that we, we see what she sees, but then the next scene, someone else says, well, that wasn't, that didn't happen that way. And then again, we see what she sees and then it didn't happen that way again, you know? So it was, um, it was all about calling into question questioning her sanity or whether she's imagining in it or or, or 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 not or whether it's real and also um i was thinking about a lot about male violence as well mm -hmm. and the idea that you know if if a son inherits a certain aspect of his of his father's temperament of his father's dna as in this violence inside him is there anything a mother can do really to change that you know mm -hmm. the boy is after all in the film He's half his mother, he's half good, but he's also half his father as well. So I thought that was an interesting um, question to raise in the film, you know. I thought it was very uh, amazing and realistic that by the end of the film, we start to realize, first of all, the scope and the reach of this cult. It's very wide reaching and people have been watching her and her son for many years. Uh, yeah. There were people planted in her life all throughout. Uh, even down to the policeman at the end. But yeah. uh, Laura reaches a point at the end of the film where she goes, I can't do this anymore. I can't continue doing this. So she goes back to the place where it all started, back in her childhood home in that bedroom. And yeah. she was willing to end it all, summoning up that demon again. Uh, yeah. An amazing ending. Uh, did you have different versions on how you wanted to get to that part or was it really straightforward for you to this is the route i want to take to that scene in the bedroom between laura and her son and then the cops coming in no it was always heading towards that i mean the the image of the bed was you know where this horror happened whether whether it was her father who who, who raped her or whether it was the demon each of them are, are equally horrific, you know, whatever the truth is, it was all about this bedroom, all about that bed. And it was all about her having to go back and face that again, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and face her trauma, you know. And then, I mean, she's, she looks, she, once she has blood on her hands, once she 
accidentally kills that police officer, that's when she says, you know, enough is enough. You know, it just this evil, evil is just going to keep unfolding from this. There is no good end to this. You know, the only end I can possibly give my son is to is to is to try and convince the demon to to make him a, bo- a real a real um rhythm of this curse he has but there is no real real no, hope for you know no yeah. it, it's like a desperate the way i saw it was like a desperate mother trying one last attempt at something that she thinks might work and that yeah. is to summon the demon and have him reverse the curse but in reality that was never going to happen that was never no. going to happen and yeah. uh uh now another Another okay. film I was thinking just before, uh, I was thinking of him. Um, I, I love David Cronenberg's um, uh, film *The Brood*. Yes, and um, he always saw that as a, this strange kind of a custody battle. But <laughs> it was like his his Kramer versus Kramer. He yeah. said, you know. Yeah. And I saw it taught in a, in a strange way after I finished it writing this. I was thinking, well, this is kind of a custody battle between the father and the mother, you know. For custody of the boy's soul and and, and and his future, you know. Yeah. And uh it makes it ex- extra chilling that, that that you know, that 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 part of his father is gonna be nurtured after the film is over, you know. And um As the writer you know, of this script, did you end it in a way that it could be open ended for a possible sequel? Or do you are you satisfied with this being a one and done? Well, this was a really tough shoot. So during it, uh, one of the producers said to me, have you thought of a sequel yet? Because everyone thought it was, it was, it felt kind of open-ended for a sequel. And I said, there's no way I'm ever going back to this, you know. Yeah, this this shoot is a nightmare. It's, uh, I'm, I never want to revisit this again. But then, you know, um, my producer friend, um, Anne-Marie Nocton, who produced the film, she always says making a film is like childbirth. You forget the pain until yeah. you're back on the yeah. on the table again. Have, and I, I don't know that, of course, but I, I, I know what she means. I, I know, yeah, me too. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, so after it was finished, I said, I actually thought of an amazing idea to continue it. So, you know, if anyone's interested in financing it, absolutely. Oh. I have a great idea for it. That'd be great. Uh, now, uh, you got the script. You're done with it, okay? Walk us through what did you, did you, uh, how did you get financing, first of all, for a studio to pick it up, uh, to go from script to actually shooting the film okay. as, you know, you being picked to director. How, walk us through how that happened from the moment you finished the script or did you have a production studio while you were still finishing the script? Well, we know I had a production company that's um, Park Films, who 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 um, I made the Canal with my previous horror okay. film, and the Canal was very well received. The premiere at Tribeca got amazing reviews. So, um, uh, on the on the strength of that, it was actually quite easy to and the Western I made previous. It was actually quite easy to get the financing together for this, you know. Um, uh, the, the Screen Ireland, uh, partially, which is the funding body in Ireland, they partially funded the development of the script, and um, so they were involved from from the very beginning, you know. So once they're on board, and my production company, who I always work with, um, and then our American and UK co-producers came on, and then uh, Shudder, AMC, RLJ came in. They had a um, if, if we got a pre-sale with them for the US and all English-speaking territories for Shudder. There you go. And 
and it just came together really quickly then you know um that's very fortunate that's very good very lucky i mean they saw the potential in this movie how was it that you were picked to direct it is that what was that your idea or did they come to you and say we want you to direct this no i mean i I've, i'm a writer director I, I always write everything that i've i always um, direct everything i've ever, ever written okay. you know so that was that was never in question i mean this is ivan's next film you know so awesome that was never a question now andy matichuk okay like i said we were introduced to andy in the halloween 2018 brilliant yeah. up-and-coming actress i mean i mean brilliant uh yeah she's amazing when was she brought in uh casted to play laura for this movie well um my american producer rene bastian and um, belladonna films and um, he had worked with her oh no he had um he had auditioned her and got to know her uh, on a previous project of his you know and he was kind enough to share an audition tape that she did for that film and she was just so natural she was great um then after that i watched um halloween mm. and i thought she was amazing in that yeah. so i hadn't seen halloween when we were already considering it you know okay. then we set up a skype between me and her and we just hit it off immediately she saw the film the way i saw it um i have i suppose quite unorthodox working methods so i don't work the way some other directors work and she was completely open to working my way she was willing to go as far as i wanted to go with the character really push the emotions of the piece you know um andy's amazing she's yeah. just she's just uh you know on the set she's an amazing presence um she's everyone loves her she's gonna be a um, huge star oh yeah she absolutely. already is she's, she already is, yeah. and and you can see, I think, in in, in Sun, which I think is her best performance. Yeah. That um, I, I I think you can see her range in there. You know, I mean, yeah. she's she goes from Halloween playing essentially a teenager, and then in 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 Sun, she's completely believable as this young, this young mother. You know, who's, mother. who's who's protecting her son. She's she's amazing. Yeah, she's a big career ahead of her. I think. I love to, and we plan to work together again in the future. Hopefully, you know. I, I, I like to work with people that I enjoy working with yeah. on multiple occasions, you know? Absolutely. So hopefully again soon. Absolutely. One of the most amazing scenes in the movie is towards the beginning when uh, she runs, runs away from the cult and she's pregnant and she's in a car and she she basically gives birth on her own in the car. Yeah. And uh, does that go back to that mother-son bond you were talking about where she was wanting to kill the child because she knows what that child is a product mm -hmm. of but as yeah. soon as she sees that baby and is holding it in her hand it yeah. all just goes away how hard was yeah. it shooting that oh i mean that was i mean the whole film was tough to shoot. <laughs> uh, that, that's a that's a that's a novel in itself you know but um uh, that was particularly i mean it was um we shot the film in mississippi and um, just before the pandemic yeah. hit i mean that Particular, we shot that in the field in the middle of nowhere. Um, we had uh, rain machines that night. It was absolutely freezing. It was, I think, it was January when we or February when we shot that. Um, that particular scene was really tough to shoot. And then we had prosthetics with the fake baby, and we had a real baby in the middle of the night as well, oh, which was God. really tricky. And yeah. yeah, that was particularly tough, you know. And it, it was a tough thing to do because getting the tone right, you know. Um, yeah because she does want to kill it when she it comes out until she sees it and then she see, she sees this sweet normal looking baby and she loves it instantly you know she falls in love with it um 
Yeah, it was a tough one in, in all aspects, photography-wise, special effects-wise, rain and, and acting. You know, that was a tough that was a tough night. So you said this whole movie was very tough for you directing. Uh, besides that scene, I mean, was it just conditions? Was there just stuff going wrong on the set? Was there delays? What made this such a really tough movie to direct? <clears throat> well, see, originally our budget, I think, was about three and a half million or something like that or four million and it was non-union and then halfway through the shoot we we became we got flipped so we beca suddenly became a union show so um, all of a sudden i lost a huge amount of my budget yeah, because it's going to it's going to guys sitting on the edge of a truck it's going to teamsters you know yeah, so uh, know. yeah yeah so that was, that was my first experience working in america as well but, and then there was just stuff that we could just couldn't control, like the weather. We had two tornadoes that struck us during the shoot. Wow. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a scene that I don't remember, remember when she visits um, the mother of an old friend, Mrs. Nagel, yes. in the middle of nowhere. Yes, yes, yes. And you can see a tree that's on top of the house almost. Well, yeah. the night we were supposed to shoot there, a tornado tore through that particular part of Mississippi lifted a 300-year-old tree out of the ground and planted it right on top of the house where we were supposed to shoot, wow. right into our set. Jeez. Um, it was just stuff like that. We had to stop multiple times because you can't shoot if lightning is within seven miles of the set, stuff yeah. like that. We had mul multiple lightning storms. Um, um, I think that particular day, that was probably the worst day. We had uh, that Mrs. Nagel scene. I think I had... We had the whole day to shoot, but I actually only had t about two hours of actual shooting time because we had to shut things down because of lightning and weather and tornadoes. And oh, it was just crazy. It was, you talk about a cursed film. This film really was felt cursed. cursed, you know? So, yeah, yeah. You, so your first uh, shoot in America did not leave a good impression on you. No, I mean, the crew, the crew was amazing, though, I have to say. I mean, they were completely behind my vision for the film. They went above and beyond. There wasn't anybody's fault. It was just, it was just conditions or the the weather. It was just the way things happened. And then losing part of my budget as we were shooting wasn't, you know, wasn't, you so, know, the best thing to happen either. So did the movie? Uh, was it because you did shoot it before COVID? Was it scheduled for a theatrical release and just pushed back to video on demand, or because like companies like Shutter? which is owned by AMC, it was going to be yeah. a straight-to-video-on-demand release from the beginning. Well, it did get a short, um, back in March, it did get a, like about two weeks in the cinema. It was okay. only on about 30 screens in the US, but people weren't going to the cinemas, no. and there wasn't any anywhere open. I mean, we couldn't get beyond 30 screens. There just wasn't any. Um, so the, the idea was always to release theatrically, but nobody knew when. It was just such a confusing time i mean do we wait or do we release the film now when when do we do it exactly we knew we had this looming release date with shutter and which is july 8 which is next month mm -hmm. so we knew we had to release it in the cinemas and on dvd before that and um, so we decided to go in march in retrospect we should have held out maybe a bit later but then again we'd be competing with this backlog of a huge amount of films so oh, yeah. i mean yeah, so there wasn't any date for cinema, but, but the plan always was to release in the cinema. So I saw the movie, 
when it first came out, I think it was the first day it was released on Video On Demand. I bought it. We bought it. And I watched yeah. it on Vudu. So the movie is coming to Shudder uh, for, for Shudder subscribers in July. July 8th, I think it is. I think that was just a press release today, actually, coincidentally. Oh, that's amazing. That's good yeah. to know. Yeah. Uh, so all Shudder subscribers will be able to watch it. This movie has gotten great reception from critics, from fans, from yeah. watched it. Uh, were you even surprised at just how good the reception of this for this movie has been? Well, I mean, I mean, it's it's always a bonus. I mean, it's always great when someone uh, connects your your films. To, but the history of my films, I mean, with the Canal, that got great initial reception as well. Um, Never Grow Old, the Western I did, it was critically great as well. But my films always turn up on those, you know, great movies you haven't seen lists, or you know. Uh, uh, you know, lost or, or, or unseen gems and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, or, or un, underrated films. So I, I, I fully expected that to happen with Sun as well. But I have to say, more people have, have probably seen this than my two previous films. So which is great, and it did very, very, very well on on VOD. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I definitely see that. Now yeah. tell us how you found uh, Luke David Blum, who played the role of David. What was it like working with such a young actor, with him having to do such gruesome scenes uh did he require a lot of directing in his movements because he did have in that motel uh to be yeah. uh, specific with him you know sort of crawling on the floor almost like an animal yeah how much directing yeah. did it need to get that scene the way you vision envisioned it well i i i'd worked with kids in quite prominent roles in my last two films you know in the canal it was a big role for a kid and so I had a I have a lot of experience working with kids, you know. And for me, it's always about keeping their mood up, you know. It always treated like a game. I mean, on the canal and on Sun, I mean, they never knew really what that they were in a horror movie. Not really, you know. It was always like a game to them, you know. And and something I learned from the canal is with David, uh, with Luke, sorry, was um that to show them the mechanics of how things are made, you know. So. Uh, introduce him to how all the prosthetics work so he knows the artifice of it you know he knows how fake everything is so he's never afraid of any yeah. of that you know but the search for the kid was was a tough one you know we saw i auditioned about 500 kids and we initially start we we looked only in new york and los angeles just to start i didn't like any of the kids i mean some of them are great but they were very movie-ish kids you know and i wanted a, a, a real child you know someone who felt like a real child, not an actor. Oh. So um, I, I suggested to the casting directors that we, we start looking locally, you know, in, in, in Mississippi and Atlanta, Georgia, places like that, you know. And then we, I, we just, out of the blue, I got this tape, you know, audition tape from Luke, and he just stood out immediately as being so natural and so likable, instantly likable on camera. So I drove down um, the next day to Atlanta to meet him, and I met him and his father, Matthew. Now, Matthew uh, is the key person in this who really helped me. Matthew is an actor himself, so he oh. knows he was able to coach Luke. So I was able to say things to Matthew like, um, Luke should watch Cries and Whispers, or um, you should watch Cries and Whispers by Igmar Bergman and and, and uh, look at how the woman in that suffers physically from cancer. Look at the reaction she gives when she's in pain. And then you can convey that to Luke. So what he did was he watched it and then showed Luke 
how to um, get that kind of physical reaction, that screaming, that writhing around in pain. So by the time he came to the set, he was very, very prepared. Um, and then I just had to give him very, very minimal direction. But for the whole crawling along the um, the, the floor scene, that was something I had very specific in my mind. So that was I was very able creepy. <laughs> Yeah, it's a creepy image, and and it's very it's equally confusing as well because Luke is kind of, I mean, he's not really a bad guy. He doesn't. I mean, he's a nice kid basically, you know. So um, it's it's, it's a strange one how you feel about that scene, and you want him to get to the um, to the pimp and help his mother, you know. Yeah. So you're, you're actually rooting there. for him to get to the bad to guy to kill the pimp. Yeah, and yeah, eat yeah. him because yeah, yeah. the guy's uh, <laughs> well, he's a dick. To put it lightly, yeah, yeah. and you're rooting for this kid too, who's in pain. And those moments, like you said, on uh, how you focused in on him writhing in pain and how well Luke yeah. played those out, you felt yeah. for him. You felt for the mother and and the position that she was in. And when she finally decided to step out of that motel room and approach who uh, this guy who you know is a low life, right? And, yeah. you know, I'm going to feed him to my son. I have no choice. Yeah. I, he's my son. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. it's just, that is just, uh, it's just one of so many scenes in that movie that is just phenomenal. The, the movie is very dark, uh, especially with those dark and macabre paintings, uh, the way it was shot. Was that all part of your plan to make it a very, you know, just, I mean, yeah. It's, I guess it's kind of a silly question, but to make it all really dark in the cinematography and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I always saw it. I mean, they, the way I always saw it, and I said to Pierce McGrail, my cinematographer, who I've worked with in multiple films now, but I always saw it was kind of going from the Norman Rockwell view of America, this idyllic view, which you see very little of, but at the start of the film, when she's teaching the kids and, and 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 she's you have those brief scenes brief scenes as she's driving her son to school and then it kind of descends into this very taxi driver hellish yeah. view of america you know so we did darken the colors or darken the the contrast of the film as we went on the the, the film became more murky and dirtier looking as we went on i mean all all those three um, motel uh, they were basically sets. We built all those. And the way we planned it was each one would get progressively worse. So by the time she gets to the pimp motel, the one with the factory, I mean, she's basically in hell there. So yeah. we really wanted to convey that sense of that she's 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 in hell. I mean, she's, this is... Yeah, she's, I she's, mean, we... No, go on. Sorry. We, we did things like... Um, we uh, we uh, pa we painted the wall. We painted the walls with oil, so they drip. They have this shiny, disgusting uh, look, and we used very uh, garish colors as well, neon colors, just to give this sense of, of of this hellish nightmare that she's in. Exactly, and that's what I was going to say. This woman is in, is in a living nightmare now. In the beginning, Laura, uh, before things start to go south. Uh, very close relationship with her son. Are we really to believe that she really thinks that she's in the free of clear of her son, A, being normal? There's nothing wrong with him, and there's no uh, hint or doubt in her mind that there's nothing that's going to happen. He's old enough. Nothing has happened. Nothing is going to happen. And B, she's free and clear of the cult as well. I think she's always looked 
been looking over her shoulder all these years. She always, I think deep down, I mean, me and Andy discussed something we discussed a lot. I think she's always feared that the worst was going to happen. But after after eight years or seven years, eight years, she's, she, I think she was probably just beginning to relax thinking, He's fine. Everything's fine. They ha- they haven't found me. They've just receded into the background. They wouldn't be stupid enough to come after me now. I mean, but the, but they do. It it comes back, or her past comes back to haunt her. There is no escaping the trauma she suffered. You know. I have a specific question for you. Uh, we are led to believe in the movie that the what happens with uh, David, uh, her son, is because of the group broke into her house and they fed him that flesh. They fed him a piece of flesh, flesh, which initiated yeah. the chain of events. If that never happened, and that let's say she did disappear and they did not know where she was, and David was never given that piece of flesh, uh, I guess it could go either way. Would he have lived a normal life and he never would have been afflicted with this? Yeah, I think he probably would. You know, If he never had that, inf- if he never tasted that, for want of a better uh, term, forbidden fruit. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he, he would have went on in this being only influenced by his mother, you know, and yeah. any, any, any bad aspect or, or evil aspect of him would have been suppressed by her, I think. But because he got that taste of his true nature, he just can't escape it exactly. from then on, you know. Yeah. And I think you're right. That's the terrible tragedy of it. If they hadn't have fed him that flesh, he would have lived a normal life, I think. She would have had the life that she wanted for her and her son. And that makes it just another yeah. aspect. It just makes it so uh, so uh, tragic, uh, which yeah. adds to yeah. the film. Now, where does yeah. Son compare uh, in your heart with some of, some of your other movies, like Canal, which came out in 2014? Uh, you've done... Uh, there's another movie that you're working on that we're going to get to in a little bit. Uh, the Fading Light, and all your other movies. Where does Sun fit in, in your heart? What, Where does that fit? And in what place does that have in your heart in regards to other successful movies like Canal that you've done? Um, I don't know. I mean, they all feel like, everyone says this, but it feels like your children, really. I mean, it's it's, it's a strange one. I mean, all the struggles and the, and the pain you go through and the arguments you have to go with people and the struggling to get what you want on screen. You know, it feels like, I always feel like I earned the film. I mean, I've been very lucky that I've been allowed to make the film, always made a film that I want to make. And that was always the only thing I was after. Um, the filmmakers are, are, I admired were always the ones who put the film first and put their own vision first. So, whether people love them or hate them, um, uh, it doesn't really matter to me. It's, it's as long as I like them. And I've always made the film just, just for me. And then the hope is that it will connect with it, with enough people then after that, you know? So I don't know. That's the key. I don't hold it above any of the others. I think technically that whole um, uh, pimp motel sequence is probably the best thing, most cinematic thing, and most, you know, consistently, consistent, uh, consistently um, cinematic sequence I've ever done. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's almost most of it is wordless. It's just pure cinema. It's 
it's been something I've, I've been kind of striving for in each film, you know. I mean, there's a there's a scene in Never Grow Old, the western I did with John Cusack just be- before that, where a character comes into a into a house, and it, when I look at it now, it's kind of a precursor to that scene where she's leading the pimp towards mm-hmm. the that the bathroom, you know. Yeah. So. I think that particular sequence is probably the most cinematic sequence I've ever done, but it feels just as personal as all my other films. I mean, The Fading Light is probably the most personal film because it's actually about my family. But um, but I, I, I feel like um, all my films are about family in a way. They're about love or lack of love, and they're about mothers and fathers and children. And Yeah, that's what I was going to yeah. say, that it seems like mm-hmm. uh, a lot of your scripts you draw on from your own personal experience with your family and other life experiences. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to do it any other way. I mean, I always feel like when I, when I approach things more cynically um, in a structural way or, or say I want to f- follow these genre tropes, it just, just doesn't come out. But when I start with this always very personal place it always just flows from that and then all the genre stuff just comes in after you know more naturally um i i uh i can probably pinpoint exactly where my my love of horror came from and where my preoccupations as a filmmaker came from is when i was when i was um 12 years old my best friend um who was 12 he he died and um I think it was the trauma of that and and the terror then I, I felt of 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 death and, and how fragile life is and also about ch- I had always had this fear of children dying and wow. it, was, it was you know it was it was I think it, it came from that and then around that period I, I remember I saw is when I began to watch horror films so they they always the, the fear in them always felt really personal to me, you know, and that kind of then transferred to my own films, you know. I remember watching just after he died, I, I saw Salem's Lot, wow. the, the the Toby Hooper TV mm-hmm. series, and that scene where the boy is scratching on the window. Yeah. Um, I remember that. I I, I felt that I, I was, I've never since even been so scared by a film. This is just a, because I yeah. I felt like it was my friend at the window, you know. It was it was it was. It felt so terrifying to me, you know. I'll, I'll never forget it. So horror has a real personal connection with you. Uh, yeah, you, it feels like. It, I mean, would you it feels, even say it's a way of uh, drilling, uh, dealing with the trauma of what happened to you at the age of twelve? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I never, it never clicked that succinctly or that um, clearly with me. But um, my wife who I've known now for seven years, or we've been married three years, but um, she's uh, studying to be a, um, a psychologist and, uh, and she pinned, she said it to me. I mean, and once she said it, it was, it was so clear to me. It was, of course, you know, it's your way of absolutely, dealing with, that's a, yeah, it's like your way of dealing yeah, with the trauma. It's like a therapy and it's a, it's a way of controlling your fears, you know, because as a director and a writer, you have complete control over these fears, you know, and part of being a director is having this control or, or you know, and, and um, it's a way of dealing with fear and trauma. Absolutely. For me, it's totally personal. Awesome. Uh, well, not awesome for the, how it started. That's very tragic. But this is the I got to say, this is the first time that I've spoke to anybody, whether it's, uh, you know, a Hollywood person like yourself or a fan doesn't matter where horror has such a personal, deep meaning and that means a lot 
So at the age of 12, this horrible thing happens to you. What films, you, you, may, you mentioned Salem's Lot, but at that age, 12, 13, 14, what are the films at that age for you that really made an impression on you? Um, around that age, yeah. Um, around yeah, around that age is when I began to go into the video store by myself, and the section I always gravitated towards was the was the horror section, you know, because it felt it was like forbidden, you know, yeah. it was like it made it extra attractive, you know. I suppose all horror fans have that experience. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was younger, I I am. Um, I, I remember I was ill and I and I went down to my mother and father and I, I told them I wasn't feeling very well and they said sit down on the sofa and my mother gave me some um, uh, paracetamol or something I, I can't remember but they were watching the end of Rosemary's Baby I remember mm. and it was that scene with uh, what have you done to his eyes and that amazing music and Mia Farrow puts her hand to her mouth and that really that moment just stuck with me i mean that that stayed with me all my life that experience you know it was just so powerful you know and um, rosemary's baby was a big one um when i saw the shining for the first time i probably saw the shining quite late about 10 years about 1990 i think was the first time i saw it so i was about 10 years old when i saw it and um that really got to me but in a different sort of way in a very filmic way it was very um frightened me a little bit but i was more fascinated how brilliant technically it was and I, I wanted to know how it was made and um it still has an endless fascination for me that oh, yeah. particular film especially um, with the that, Texas uh, oh go on I, I was just gonna say on the shining especially with that open-ended ending with jack in that picture which leaves it which kubrick left it up to the viewer to sort of make yeah. sense of that picture sorry i interrupted you but go on the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was another one. Um, I, I, I just just blew me away the first time I saw it. So that was, I think it's probably still the most visceral film experience I ever had. You know, um, and I remember when I was about twelve or thirteen, we used to be in Dublin. There used to be this really small cinema called I think it was called the Curzon Cinema. It was it was in the center of Dublin, and they kind of got second run movies. You know. Mm -hmm. and they used to let me in when i was about 12 and 13 to see absolutely anything you know and it was like uh, you know you know you know uh, i saw i remember i saw a, a double bill for taxi driver and 48 hours um um when i was only 13 maybe and uh i 48 saw hours with eddie murphy yeah with with taxi driver with taxi a driver. that's a weird combo uh, right there <laughs> yeah it's really strange but at the same time, they're kind of, in my mind, they're kind of matched because I, I remember there's a lot of street, very gritty street scenes in Walter Hill's film as well that kind of matched with me in my mind for, for, for Taxi Driver. But um, I remember I saw um, Poltergeist was another big one mm. I saw on the cinema when I was very young. And that, I just loved that film. I loved the film experience of seeing that on the big screen, you know. Um, that's a real tre treasured memory of seeing that on the big screen. It was just, it was just, that's a great movie. It's Toby Hooper again. Yeah, Toby Hooper. It seems like you're a big Toby Hooper fan. Well, I mean, I haven't seen quite a lot of them. I, I, I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love um, uh, Poltergeist. And I, I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. I think it's a really crazy, uh, uh, fun movie. And I kind of, I always felt like, I felt always felt sorry for Toby Hooper. I, I, I think he got a raw deal. Well, you know, and, when, I say, I when I say... 
when I've always said this with movies like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is now a classic, it's etched in history, it's never going anywhere. History is what is going to dictate its place in the film. Absolutely. Okay. The the reviews it gets, uh, especially with those classics, like you mentioned, The Shining, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Poltergeist, you know, and you could go on that list for a long time. But anyway, history is the judge that will let us know the movies that withstand the test of time. And That's all right. the movies you mentioned, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Shining, Poltergeist, those are the classics, and they're never going Absolutely. anywhere. Absolutely. Well, well, you, you look at the reviews for The Shining when it came out. I mean, they were absolutely scathing, you know. Mm-hmm. And now, now, and now, you know, mainstream critics are are falling over themselves to praise the film. I mean, it's absolutely um, crazy. Another big one for me when I wasn't that young, but I saw it when it came out, and and I went to see it four times. I remember on the cinema was um, David Lynch's film. Um, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. Yeah. That was that was that was a for me as a filmmaker, that was the film, you know. I thought I remember being blown away by the, the sound design and the raw motion of that film. And that was another film that got absolutely torn yeah. to pieces by critics when it came out. Yeah. And I remember I was so angry about it, I wrote into um several film magazines saying, You're all insane, this film is a masterpiece, you know, and they never published them, but oh, no. <laughs> I, I I needed it to get it out of my system, you know. Uh-huh. And I went; it was on for one week. I remember on in Dublin before it was hastily taken off, and yeah. I went to see it four four times. Yeah. I think it's a great movie. I think Cheryl Lee gives a absolutely stunning performance, and there there it's just incredible. incredible I always stuff. read uh, a lot of critic reviews uh, with my when I do my solo shows, and I always tell my viewers, listen. Guys, this is one person's opinion. So I'm gonna I'll read yeah. it. I'll read it for you, but take it with yeah. a grain of salt. Okay? Please judge yeah. the movie on your own. Yeah. Uh yeah. it seems to me that you are a big fan of I would say A paranormal slash supernatural films, and then slasher films come in a very close second. Would you agree with that? No, I mean I'm not really. I mean slasher as in Texas Chainsaw Master. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm not a big slasher guy, you know. Um, I love certain films. Um, I love them. Um, I like ha- I admire Halloween, the original Halloween, yes. more than I like it. But I prefer Black Christmas. That frightens me more. Me too. The Bob the Bob the Bob Clark film. I think it's creepier. Yeah. And yeah. it's something very. I feel like I need a share after I watch that. <laughs> it's, it's. I think it's a really effective film, and and I think it predated Halloween, didn't it? Yeah, I think so. For me, slasher movies are fun to watch, but they don't scare me. I mean, I enjoy them. The Halloween, you know, the early Friday the 13th movies, the early Nightmare on Elm Street movies. But for me, to this day, the only subgenre that actually uh, gives an opportunity for a story character building, and it's still very scary for me, is the paranormal subgenre. That's what I love. That's That's what, to this day in the horror realm still can scare me the rest don't scare me zombies don't scare me slasher flicks no. don't scare me i enjoy watching them you know but if i want to sit down and i want to get you know creeped out i'll watch a movie like sun you know yeah. uh i love i love the conjuring movies like what's your opinion on like the conjuring movies i i i like the first one i didn't like the second one so much but uh, i like the um 
Um, the original, I liked the first yeah. one. I thought it was very, the original one. I thought that was very effective. I haven't seen any of the other one. How many is there now? There's three now. Oh, uh, yeah. The third, the third one. one is coming out actually this yeah. week. In three days, it's coming out. It's called yeah. The Devil Made Me Do It. And it's going yeah. to... It's a Warner Brothers film, so it's going straight to HBO Max and some limited theaters here in the United States. Wow. I don't know about worldwide. Uh, yeah. So moving forward in in your career, do you see yourself branching out from horror or you have absolutely no desire and you're perfectly happy and content with sticking with the horror realm? No, I mean, I love all types. I mean, my, my taste is very eclectic in, in films. I love all... I mean, my only my only criteria is do I like it or, or or not. I mean, I grew up in a household where all types of films were on, and my father's a real um, movie buff, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, he he loves classic Hollywood movies, all all genres. And my uncle was um, more into art house and yeah. uh, uh, foreign films, you know, and so I was exposed to a lot of stuff, and I still have a love of a lot of type of films. And um, I did a western before this one. Um, I'd love to go back to the Western. It's a, it was, um, I think I did made a pretty good Western. I'm very proud of it. Um, I have an idea for another Western, but right now, I mean, the ones I'm signing up for, are just about to sign up for, are all horror. And I think that's just because people see your last film and and that's what you get offered, you know. And it's it's very you very you always have to go with which ones are going to get financed, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. I mean. There's a couple of dream products projects I want to make. I'm very, um, but they're more, I suppose you classify them art house family dramas, but they're much harder to, to finance, even though they're lower budgets. So as a filmmaker, I mean, you're at the mercy of where the money is coming from, basically what film you can make. You know, I, I've, yeah. I'm a, I'm a person who's always writing, who always has multiple projects on the go. And the ones that just seem to get made are horror, but that's not the, to put horror down, I, no. I love it. I, I'd be, I'd very happily oh, yeah. make make horror films for the rest of my life. I think it's it allows you complete um, freedom as a filmmaker. It it frees you up. Um, I mean, you can experiment visually and with sound and with structure, and uh, and the audience will accept it because it's a horror movie. You know, exactly. um, it doesn't have to be realistic. And I always feel like like. Like cinema is like a waking dream it's like dreams is the closest you know and and and, and i think the, the genre closest to that is is horror you know and then um, so exactly. i'd be very happy to stay in that genre for the rest of my career that's awesome now uh let's go back to sun for a second I, this is a great point most uh because i do put sun in the paranormal supernatural because of the demonic entity and all that even though it's not, you know, doors opening and closing on themselves, you know, the typical tropes that you see in other, you know, paranormal films. Uh, but there yeah. is also a good amount of blood and gore in that film. Yeah. Uh, it's a nice mixture done very well put together by you. Um, you don't really see that in a lot of paranormal films today. You see a lot of you know, ghosts, jump scares. Yeah, I, I don't true. think there's a, a single jump scare in Sun. Uh, it's not a jump scare movie. It's not a jump no. scare movie. Uh, but and but yet there's a fair amount of gore in it, a lot of blood. Uh, how did you balance those two out? Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, 
the blood and gore just felt like a need. It always felt like it needed to be really brutal or something, you know. It, you needed really brutal and savage or something, you know. This shocking con- contrast between the boy and uh, the innocence of the seemingly innocence of the boy when he's with his mother, and then this absolute ferocious brutality of it, you know. Yeah. Um. I don't know why. I mean, it's probably the bloodiest film I have made, but. In all my films, um, The Canal and Never Grow Old and, and this one, there is a juxtaposition between this very ten- this loving tenderness with this sudden, swift change in mood to extreme violence, you know? Yeah. And as I was saying earlier, I, I grew up in a very um, working-class part of Dublin and um, I, have an, I have an early memory of um, my mother. I don't know. I was very young because I was holding my mother's hand. I must have been five or six, maybe. And we were passing by a pub, I remember, and um, a really a dive of a pub in, in, in this really horrible part of Dublin. And these two guys were fell out onto the pavement and they were fighting. And I remember hearing, I can still remember the sound and seeing this guy's head being bashed into the, wow. into the pavement and the big pool of blood that was around his head. And I remember I was having this beautiful... Um, conversation with my mother i don't know what we i don't know where we were i can't remember but i remember it was a loving conversation and then all of a sudden there was this sudden horrific violence in front of me and then she whisked me away and it just stayed with me you know so i think that again maybe it's that therapy thing again it it weaved its way into the into the film you know but it it goes back to your personal experiences coming out in your films which i i see nothing wrong with that i see i think that's awesome people bringing writers especially bringing their own life personal experiences into their scripts, A, I think it makes it more realistic uh, and it makes it a lot more believable. We're almost Mm -hmm. out of time, but I do want to ask you, you have this film called Disassembled Man. It's just announced. I'm assuming it's not in production yet. You are uh, directing it. Uh, It doesn't show you as writing it. And you also have... Uh, as a writer, a TV series called The Vanishing Triangle. So can you yeah. tell us anything about those two upcoming projects? Well, The Disassembled Man, I mean, that, that's that's one I've been trying to get made for a good few years now. It's by the writer, John Bassoff. It's a crime novel. And, uh, well, it's a psycho crime novel. I mean, okay. it's pretty it's pretty wild, wild. It's really violent. It's really funny. Um, but it's been tough to finance now, to be honest. I think we're close now. So um, it's an absolutely fantastic script by John. I really recommend John Bassoff's books. He's just a fantastic writer, fantastic crime writer. Um, The border on horror as well. So horror fans, I'd say, would love them. The TV series is is something I'm not directing. I'm just writing. It's based on a true story uh, from the 1990s in Dublin. It's a a true crime uh, drama. It's set in in, in, um, the 1990s. Um, it's been produced by MGM, and I'm doing that with Park Films, who, who uh, I did The Canal and um, uh, Sun with. And um, I have a few other uh, films in the works as well. I have a film called um, uh, After I'm Gone. It's um, um, it's a, um, a post-apocalyptic movie. I didn't write that one either, but it's an absolutely wonderful script. Awesome. Um, um, and that's very much in the horror genre, but really like sun and like the canal and my other films it's really emotional it's all about family and um 
yeah, I'm really excited about that one. I think that one will probably be the one I do next. Awesome. Now, The Vanishing Triangle seems to be your first dive into TV. Is that accurate? Yeah. No, I mean, um, I had I briefly, well, for about a year and a half or so, um, I wrote a pilot for uh, USA Network and um, uh, yeah, BBC Worldwide um, based on The Turn of the Screw, the ghost story, just after the canal came out. Okay. And um, I think it was a fantastic script, but that didn't, for one reason or another, that didn't happen. So it wasn't my first foray into the into into TV. This okay. one is um is uh we've written we're in the middle of writing all eight episodes. So it looks like one this one is definitely going to happen. But it's a different medium, you know. It's um. Is it going to be in uh, the US as well? Or is it going to be just in Europe? Um, no, well, it's been produced out of the US, so it's it's American money, but okay. it's 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 been sh it's been sh going to be shot in Ireland. Awesome. Awesome. Ivan, we are almost out of time. This has been one of the most fascinating hours. You're an amazing guest. It has been just such a pleasure to get to hear the inside thoughts that went behind such a great movie like Sun and some of your other projects. This hour just flew by. I can't thank you enough for joining us. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share before we say goodbye? Not really. Just it was a pleasure to be here. Great to talk to you. Great to it. talk to you. Great to talk to you guys. And guys, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this interview. I know I did. Uh, thank you to our special guest, writer, director, Ivan Kavanaugh. Also, editor, producer, composer. Credits go on and on and on. <laughs> There's nothing you haven't dived into. Instead of, you know, the only thing missing is you doing a cameo in one of your own movies. So maybe one I've day... I've done that. I, I... I don't know. Yeah. Oh, well, that should definitely <laughs> put that in there. All right. Well, it's uncredited. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you, Ivan, for joining us. Until next time, That's guys, good. stay safe. And on behalf of Ivan and myself, stay walking. Good day. Bye bye. <laughs>